So I noticed that uh, a lot of you have bought books, which I'm thrilled about. So uh, just a little piece of more mercantile information. Um, Lynn has only brought the most recent of his book, so uh, the others are available on Amazon, which is where I got mine. Um, and uh, the reason that those uh, hardcovers are $10 today is they're the last of the, they may not be the very last, there may be some more back there. I think there's a big box somewhere because they are the last of the hardcovers extant in the world. You know, when they print a book in hardcover, they print a certain amount of that. And then after that, it becomes um, uh, a paperback, which is fine. But um, these are the last of the hardcovers that Spirit Rock has managed to acquire. And uh, so you can have them at this great bargain. Um, I like it a lot, but you know, I, I was in a different place when I wrote each of them, so I like them all a lot. So, um, Bad Dog's great. Bad Dog is marvelous. Um, wait a minute, Bad Dog is the, is the first or the second? Is the second, isn't it? It was my third, but the first two were a warm-up for Bad Dog. What was the one then, before? Then Josh Bartok at Wisdom Publications, yeah. I think is, like, marvelous. Yeah. Huh? He got hold of it, and he said, okay, we're going to do this. Yeah. We did. <clears throat> he is marvelous. He is just publishing. It just came out this week. Um, the book a friend of mine wrote, called, uh, it's, it's a, 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 a um, How to Be Sick. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, so I want to tell you a minute about it. Her name is Toni Bernhardt. Uh, she's a longtime Dharma practitioner. And the short of her story is eight years ago, she was from one day to the next taken seriously ill with a, um, in, everything is transient. But this has not been so transient, chronic fatigue, and she's really been mostly incapacitated for nine years now, eight or nine. And in the last two years, she's written a book from her Dharma practice of how to be sick, not only for people with chronic fatigue, but people with diabetes and people with rheumatoid arthritis and people with heart disease and people with MS and people who are alive, because we all have uh, in a sense, um, a terminal illness uh, without a particular diagnosis. But, and she's done a very, very good job, and Josh Bartok was her editor at Wisdom, and she's loved him. <clears throat> Makes a big difference who your editor is, and if your editor really loves what you're saying. So if you know anybody in that situation, Tony's book would be a great gift for them, I think, called How to Be Sick. Josh Bartok is the kind of, am I not okay? Josh Bartok is the kind of editor that can get you on the phone and say, Arlen, we really want this book. It's really great. And because uh, I never, I just write what I'm going to write and then send it to him. He says, I'm thinking about maybe 40 to 50 percent reduction. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, you're talking about about a year and a half of really hard writing. But he can do that sort of thing. 
And so I said, well, what book do you have in mind? And he sort of gave a sense of it. I said, well, I won't know till I try. By the time I had redone the third chapter, I said, yeah, this is right. He understands the book, parts that I don't understand. You know, He knows where this needs to go. So I, I really commend him for his courage. I don't know if I could tell an author a thing like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, hold, hold on, you know, sit down for just a moment, make sure you're steady, because I'm thinking about omitting the next three chapters, <laughs> that sort of thing. And uh, I love him for that. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I could write without him. Maybe you'll read some of your writing later on. We talked about that, that you might read a little bit of your writing. Um, we'll see how the afternoon we'll unfolds. We'll see how it goes, yeah. We thought we'd I do see. have a short piece that might work like that, uh, yeah. It's, 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 I'm sometimes surprised if I pick something to read. Um, And you know, at random, and I read it, and I think all of a sudden I'm surprised. Wow, that was good, you know. But I don't, but I don't remember writing it. And you know, I mean, I know it's mine. I mean, I wrote it, but uh, it came through a different channel. So it's interesting. The whole process is interesting, and being able to say something and have people read it at a distance is really an amazing experience. And the whole thing is amazing. Teaching is amazing. Sylvia, have you ever had this experience where you're reading something that you wrote and published, you know, maybe six, seven years or more before, and you start <coughs> reading it, and you say, you know, this is really pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. Wow. I am, I am. <laughs> I was smart in those days. <laughs> Who wrote? And I actually think that I, 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 people say, well, which do you like the best? And, you know, I like them all. And I read the first one, and I'm pleased with it. Um, because I know it's the least self-conscious, you know. I just someone said someone came to class on a Wednesday morning, and they said you're a good storyteller. And I said, oh, thank you. And they said, did you ever think of writing a book? I said, no. And they said, well, if you ever think about it, come and see me. I'm an agent. This is like a person's dream. This is in the in the world now. This is like winning a lottery. You can't find an agent for anything. Here comes one who says, I'm an agent. And what's more, my husband's an editor at Harper, San Francisco. If you ever think about it, let me know. And I didn't think about it for two years. And I just I went about my business. And one day I was telling a story, and I thought, well, this is a good story. Maybe I'll tell a few stories and put them together in a book. So I wrote up a few stories, and we wrote up a book proposal and sent it, you know. And, oh, and she took it to Harper and called me and said, yeah, they'd like it. Uh, I was just at the editor's meeting, and they'd like to buy it. And what's more, they're publishing a series on how to meditate. And they've got a, 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 one from Islam, and one from Judaism, and one from Christianity. And they wonder if you'd like to write a handbook for meditation at the same time and get you two contracts. This totally is off the charts in terms of what happens. And I naively said, yes, of course, uh, sure. So how much time do you need? And I said, nine months, because that seems like the right time to gestate anything, long enough. <laughs> and it always works. It's built in. Anyway, enough of that. But um, the whole bookstore is amazing. Uh, 
enough of that. Let's sit. Um, I'd like. Uh, I, I'd like for us to sit a little bit, and uh, particularly uh, to have in mind: uh, sit, relax, do whatever practice you want. Let the mind be as spacious and easy. Uh, especially because it's after lunch and the mind gets a little sleepy, uh, so it's nice to give it a little bit of a, a task to do. Um, maybe you could reflect on what you might say if you were uh, in a small circle of people talking about the same kinds of things that Lynn and I spoke of this morning, that uh, looking backwards in life at the moment that my grandmother said that to me, I, I didn't think, ah, oh, that's a great meaning of life. Or at the, I, I knew that I loved that Cousin Zaka's book and read it again and again and again. But I didn't put together, I have concern about the existential questions of life and how shall I address it, and maybe I should take up a spiritual path. I did not put that all together in any kind of an orderly way. But I think that because there were certain lights that went on in my mind that said ding, 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 and I do want to go gently into that good night, that somehow when my life set itself up, that my husband said, so you should go to this, and I went, that had all those ding-dings before it. So I didn't go there to find the answers, but they began to be there. Uh, and I think that I began to see them there because I had all those ding-ding-dings happen in my mind before. You know, the fancy word in Dharma language for ding-ding-ding uh, is inclining the attention in the direction of. <laughs> so you frequently talk about the teacher inclines the attention in the direction of, and then uh, revelations appear. I, I often think of, I often change the words insight. This is called insight. Vipassana is called insight meditation. It's supposed to get insights, but we use so much in the word insight as a psychological term. I had insight about why this frightens me, or why that, or why this. I like to call it revelation practice. I think they're revelations where you say, whoa, look what I just realized. Like you said this morning, wow, uh, look what I just realized. So if, if you let come into your mind without, if you give your mind the, the uh, instruction in this um, 15 minutes or so that we sit, um, is it already? Okay. In this um, Thirteen minutes that we sit. <laughs> In the thirteen minutes that we sit, uh, may some thoughts about ding ding ding. What put me on a path that led me to be here this afternoon at Spirit Rock talking about these things.
They've just been reflecting on them. We got to do those circles right now so they can talk about how they reflected. And then after the circles, then you'll... Okay. Oh, that's beautiful. I hope you love the idea of uh, being in small circles and talking to some other people. I've, every time I'm about to say, let's be in small circles, I think of my beloved friend, Martha, no longer in this world with us, who said, every time you say in a class, Sylvia, now pick a partner or get in a circle, I run out to the ladies' room and I stay there for 15 <laughs> minutes. So I just want to hear what you're saying. I want to do any sharing with anybody else. Uh, so there are always people who are reluctant because they're not such a sharer or because it's a quiet day and you know, we're enjoying our own space. But I think we can share in a quiet way and in a thoughtful way and that that's a practice as well. I'd like to suggest people do this just for a little while. Uh, I'd like to suggest that you, without too much fuss, you find yourself in the company of uh, four other people. That would be a good size. Uh, of a circle, I think, for other people, uh, and if you and all the better if you don't know them. Um, but you don't have to fuss about that if it's easy. Uh, all the better if the floor sitters find floor sitters and the chair sitters find chair sitters, so no one has to be discommoded. And. Um, <laughs> so, uh, actually, yeah, there's a fair amount of floor sitters could find floor sitters. So, without any talking, let's uh, see if we can just do that piece. Find yourself in a little circle of people. More than five is not so good. Four is good. No, that's five, that's okay. Here you go, four. Four is good. Five is good. More than five is a little big. Any people who are finding themselves the sixth person could just make a new group. Four. Everybody got, who has three? Who has four? Who has five? Everybody else. Are there three people who have four? We're three groups of four. Who has four? One, two, three. Would you like to be in a group of five? Oops, you would like to be in a group of four. Oh, okay, terrific. We have worked this out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just pass that. It's just a stupid thought <laughs> that the people in the five groups have to talk faster than the people in the four groups. Forget it. They do not have to. They can talk at whatever rate is comfortable for them. Uh, and we thought, uh, uh, actually, this was Lynn's thought, and I think it's a great idea that uh, it. it that our experiences that we talked about this morning 
are are unique to us, but they're not unique, and 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 only to us. They're unique because they're part of our experience. But everybody here who's here today didn't get here by accident. You came here because there's something happening that has to do with something that you're interested in, and that interest has roots somewhere in your life. Um, in another context, we'd maybe say we're telling each other a piece of our spiritual autobiography. But that's even maybe fancier than what it is. Um, so why don't we uh, leave it for you to uh, choose one person. I have a friend who says the person with the shortest hair should start. Uh, but you could make another plan. <laughs> But that 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 relieves the issue of deciding who's going to go, or the oldest or the youngest. But anyway, somebody start and then talk for a little bit, and then somebody else start. Would it be helpful to you if I rang the bell at, um, say, four minute intervals? Four. Four seems right, so that you don't have to think fast. Three minute intervals, Naomi? Naomi knows, okay. So, uh, <laughs> she, she really does, actually. <laughs> she does a lot of this kind of work, and we'll, we'll talk about that more later. Anyway, three minute intervals, and I'll ring the bell. And if you're in the middle of the sentence, you don't have to freeze. You can finish what you're saying. This is a good start time, because it's right on two o'clock. There you go, two o'clock, ready, set, go.
So now we come to a strategic uh, place where some people have done all their four people and some people have not. So the people who have only the four people have the luxury of continuing on to say whatever they want to say. And the last person in the five-person group will now say. <laughs>
stay, 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 stay just where you are. Don't go home. Don't go home. Unless you have an emergency, to, you have to go somewhere. Stay a minute. Stay one more minute. Stay one more minute and with your group together. It's always very, uh, um, I love it. I was telling Lynn, it's, it's inspiring to me. When you ask people to talk about something really quite subtle and dear and uh, their, their, their spiritual life, uh, that they do it, you know, with strangers, you know. Uh, um, well, I could have told you a little story about that, but it won't, because it's more important that we do this next thing right now. In this next minute, in your group, see if you can say a few words to each other about if you had to be the spokesperson of your group, because each group will have a spokesperson, and say what we noticed were the, as, as areas of real resonance that, you know, everybody had different stories, but what seemed to resonate, what the resonating points were, or a resonating <laughs> point was, and who's going to be the spokesperson and say, and the, so here you go, ready, set, go, figure it out.
Are you ready? Are you ready to do it? It's very fun to watch. Uh, it's very fun to watch uh, all of you having discussions because everybody, everybody, uh, appropriately and understandably, uses their hands, and you can almost tell what they're saying by the hands. It's wonderful because up here you have a vantage point. So, uh, who wants to start? Why don't we start there? We'll pass around the mic. Where, where, where's our mic monitor? Paul, where are you? I forgot my job. Forgot your job. <laughs> I got involved. I forgot my job. And you got to put back your That's sign good. to do the job, right? <laughs> Forgetting is good. Testing? Okay. There you go. Then you can sit back down, Paul, because he'll pass it to the next person. Okay. Um, so we... We had a very eclectic group in terms of experience that went all the way from how many years? A lot of years, to, <laughs> to but not that many, um, to two days, and um, and uh, and that would be me. Uh, um, and um, and the, 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 what resonated was the fact that a session like this appeals to so many different levels of experience. And an illustration that it's all about the path and uh, this kind of no, no, no <coughs> end point. Trying to do my best here in two days to catch up. <laughs> Thank you very much. Why don't you pass it to your next group right over there? What's your name? Jan. Jan. Um, I think we all agreed also that life's hectic, and we come. We came here today, um, and it was sort of the same reason we came here today. We started into ser searching for a spiritual path in this way, um, because life is so full of so many different things, and each person had something to say about uh, some trial, some something that's going on in their life that they need to be mindful for, and so. The spiritual practice or the practice of meditation has helped us every time we've come across some um, upheaval that we're able to deal with more better as a result of our spiritual path or our meditation has helped us through many different things. So that seemed to be, um, we're here, it's like a, it is a retreat, it's a wonderful place to come to be able to uh, just get juiced up for the next thing. Thank you very much. What's your name? Neva. Neva. Hi, I'm Miriam. And the three themes we are reporting are the universality of spiritual experiences, 12-step programs as a spiritual path, and relationship as a shared spiritual journey. Thank you, Miriam. We have a group over here on the floor. <laughs> they should stand up but we have a couple of mothers with teenage kids and a student almost you know year and a half left of school and dentistry I didn't get what you did but you're newer to the practice 
and and I'm a filmmaker, and we, I think all of us sort of agreed that very similar to what y'all were talking about is finding some way to make it through the turmoil with in t in retaining some kind of inner peace. And a couple of us questioned um, the no when to hold them, no when to fold them rule, which is when you let go, are you really letting go or are you quitting? Mm -hmm. Even though I should know the answer to that. But um, I confess that was one of my biggest questions. Um, so I think, am I missing anything? Okay, that's us. Well, we, we took off um, on the question of what kind of over our histories, you know, your grandmother, starting with your grandmother, what kind of things um, awakened us. And something that we all shared was some connection throughout life with the natural world um, that really uh, from all different ages spoke to us. So that was one theme that we talked about. Um, another was really just being brought here uh, to have some relief from the chattering mind uh, and what it offers to detach from identifying with thoughts. Um, and uh, the relief reprieve uh, of the space that today and the teachings are offering. And there was one other thing that you mentioned, which I, oh yes, and the, um, the pleasure and enjoyment in learning via storytelling uh, is something we all shared. What's your name? Uh, I'm Amy. I'm Margaret. Um, in looking for what was resonating for all of us, I think we had a geographically eclectic group. So we had someone from Arizona, from Florida, and then two locals, Sonoma County and Marin County. And what turned out is that Spirit Rock is a kind of spiritual home or gas station that we come to <laughs> to get kind of filled up, to touch base. It's a place that we feel very safe in. And so I think that was something everyone had come and as part of their travels, these folks stop into to Spirit Rock because it's a place that has given them guidance and nurturance and I, then we are more local. I think the other thing that came up was a sense of appreciation of um, Spirit Rock as a place where there is, it's not dogmatic, that many of the teachers talk about you can go lots of different paths, there are a lot of ways, there are certain tools that you need to go, and I think today's talk about kind of going off the trail and stuff is another example of the flexibility. So Spirit Rock is a flexible, safe place to you know, find some guidance. Hi everybody, I'm Nancy. And uh, I think our group, uh, we had um, some practitioners that have been at it for a while. And uh, one of the main themes is we were talking about some of the the books or the ways that supported our practice before we knew it was practice. 
And so we talked about family and uh, you know, Naomi had some wonderful things from her parents and so we talked about some books that had meant a lot to us like I went back to the prophet way back when and, uh, and it, it actually, some of the themes of that are the same that uh, speak to us in, in the Pasana practice, particularly the compassion. And one of the catalysts that brought many of us here, we talked more about what brought us to the Dharma as opposed to what brought us today. Uh, but suffering was a theme <laughs> for basically all of us. And so we appreciated um, you know, what, the, what this practice does to help us live our lives. And, um, and, and, and one of the things certainly for me was the, uh, just what a wonderful freedom is the first noble truth, that that suffering that we talked about isn't personal, you know, and it's not like we're doing something wrong and that we have this practice, including the, the Dharma and the Sangha, to, um, to give us a space. Thanks. You didn't say your name. Say your name. Nancy. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to startle you. Okay. I'm Barbara. And um, we had a variety of paths for getting here and a variety of um, years of experience or times of experience. And the common thread, actually, which brought us all here today um, and to Spirit Rock was Sylvia. Um, <laughs> and one of our members had actually done a retreat with you elsewhere, but um, that was sort of what got everyone here today or in the past. So I, I guess those are the things in, and we, there were various ways in, in which um, you were the, either the first teacher or the teacher of who was known. So that, that's our commonality. Hi, I'm Hestia. Um, Actually, if you hold the microphone really close and get away from that speaker, it'll stop doing that. How about I stand over here? Mm, that's better. Hold the mic better. close. <laughs> 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 Become um, an ice cream cone. <laughs> so we had a, a, a small group of four, but we also had that vast experience of, of some people have, have uh, been practicing for years and some is just just now experimenting today to find out what's going on. Um, but the, uh, so there was a preponderance of us, not universal, but a preponderance that found a lot of spiritual um, uh, satisfaction in nature and being able to connect with spirit while we're out and, and moving about in nature. Um, but the universal theme was really that each and every one of us wanted to, ha had a strong desire to be able to take those spiritual practices, that, that, that understanding of spirit, and bring it into our daily life, to find every moment or every interaction, to find some way to bring that in. So that's why we're here and studying. I'm Jane. Our group, um, well, a couple of us came because we knew Sylvia, and a couple came for Lynn, and so it was a great mix. Um, w the universal theme that we seemed to, to all be speaking to was that we all 
came into the practice looking for self-improvement, but have found that it's acceptance of life and who we are that seems to be the broader path. Um, and it's uh, a deep understanding um, and seems to mark for us a movement along the path. Hey, so I'm Philip, and uh, trying to avoid feedback. So um, Paul, Jim, Solomon, and I, we, yeah, we spoke about a lot of the same things that everyone else was speaking about, um, mostly uh, why we came here today. And I think to sum it up, we all had a desire and a longing to get away and to um, sort of sort things out and get away from the pressure of living in the city and to also reconnect with, with you as teachers, also with the Dharma as teachings, and then also with, uh, with the great outdoors. And, and we're just talking about our, um, just our need and longing for connecting with nature and connecting with Dharma and how difficult it is to do in the city when we're sort of running around in circles and um, you know, and, and just dealing with stress. So I think that pretty much sums it up. Thank you. Did, did everybody? No. Um, I'm Charlotte, and I'm speaking because I have the longest hair. Uh, <laughs> We went around the hair rule. And um, we discussed uh, almost universally everything that has been said, certainly applies. Uh, one of the things that came up was that at each visit, the returning visit, there's sort of aha experiences. Everyone's looking for something that they can then take and improve, uh, have, a, have a better way of living uh, by using what we've Heard. And those things come sometimes in small packages, sometimes explosive packages. But I think all of us uh, shared that, that we are here um, because we have a, a kind of thirst or hunger to, to have that connection with spirituality. Right? Yeah. So oh, oh, all the, all the, Tidbits, tidbits, all the, oh, here, this, this is, oh, but you were the one that said it. She said, well, we all talked about little tidbits that we all picked up and learned and made our lives better, right? And then you said, well, if you take all those tidbits together, it's a kind of a hum all the time. <laughs> <laughs> the hum of all the tidbits. We came up with, did you want to continue? No, no, I'm done. We came up with it is what it is. And we came up, what did you say, with the universal... We all had things in, in mind. We all came for different reasons, and we all came here because we cared about kindness and gentleness. But it is what it is came up a few times. <laughs> My name is reluctant. No, I... <laughs> <laughs> Um, we, we discovered that we all had been drawn to some sort of meditative way of life from a pretty early age and that we have journeyed towards it and away from it and back to it again 
that it isn't a, it's not a direct road. There are an awful lot of off-trail experiences along the way. And I think one of the most fascinating pieces of our conversation was the fact that um, the social revolution that occurred at the time of the Grateful Dead and the Beatles <laughs> really was a sort of propellant towards a meditative way of living and looking at the world. So we did, we did all the groups. We had one in the back there. The name of this group is more reluctant. <laughs> this is pure refusal here. <laughs> okay, you can see <laughs> we had a little trouble um, making a decision on who would uh, represent us. Uh, my name is Patricia, and um, we had a lot in common professionally, the five of us. And um, but I think I don't know um, what what I heard from everybody was that. Um, you know, we each came here today to kind of go more deeply and, and you know, feel what's really important to us and come here to um, get rejuvenated around that, get more insight and input. And, um, and age, you know, the, the different stages of life and how they affect us on a spiritual path, and that definitely was affecting myself as well as others. And um, is there anything I missed? Would anybody else like to say anything? Okay, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Listen, thank you all. Thank you, I want to say something. In a minute we're going to stand up, so I'm standing up. Uh, I want to say something about what I hear as the overall theme from everybody's theme, the theme of themes, uh, if you will, is that everybody uh, used the word, most people either use the word or pointed to some wisdom that would make you feel better. That being out of nature, out of the schedule, away from the city, away from the usual routine, some intimation of childhood, some hints we'd had from people that had been our parents or our grandparents, something that had said, there's a way to be wise in this world, and something in you, that in all of us, that resonates to that, yes, there is. And, I, and sometimes when, when, uh, when I rediscover what uh, something that seems to me, whoa, piece of wisdom, and that was for a while clouded, and it wasn't there. I'm always surprised and reassured to find that we're wiser than we think, and that we're not so much becoming wise in our practice. I was telling Lynn yesterday, I'm changing the way I say things. I think we are removing the obstacles that prevent our natural wisdom from manifesting itself. So. Uh, this is what I'd like for us to do at this point, and I'll tell you why we're going to do this. In a minute, I'd like you to stand up more or less where you are, and we'll do somewhere around five minutes of a guided movement practice, which you'll be able to do because I'm going to lead it, so it's not going to be very hard. <laughs> and I'm going to do that because, first of all, we've been sitting a long time, and we're going to sit another hour, so we need to do that at this point, and also because I really want to make the point that uh, learning takes place in every posture and sitting still as well as moving. 
and in the life and in all situations. And then after this little, this five minute period, we'll sit down back for five minutes during which time if you need to use any of the facilities, please use them and then come back. And then Lynn will teach and then I will teach and then we will bid each other farewell. That's the whole shape of the whole afternoon. So uh, if you will, stand up wherever you are. And uh, what you need to have is enough room to put your arms um, out ahead of you without hitting anybody and out to the side without hitting anybody. Over your head without hitting anything. Okay. So you just need a little personal space. So be in your space. And first of all, just stand up and take a breath in and out. And another breath in and out. I bicycle a lot, and my, my friends that are better cyclists than I say, really breathe out the last breath hard, and then your next breath will come in fuller. So let the breath out. And then the next breath will fill more up. Let the next breath out, 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 and push it out. And the next one will come in fuller. And enjoy it. Let your feet be under your hips. Your body be balanced. Really do this practice uh, of bringing the attention into the body in order, <coughs> again, to get the eyes <coughs> behind the binoculars, to get them, <coughs> excuse me, we'll see if that works, <coughs> to get them to see what's already there. So while you're standing like this, bringing the attention into your body, I'll tell you to do some things and I'll tell you a story as we do those things. Feel your feet on the ground. Feel your breath as it comes way down into your belly and then goes out through your nostrils. Keep your attention in the breath coming in and out. You'll notice that as your chest fills, your arms move a little bit out to the side. They just do. You'll notice that as the breath goes in, your shoulders pick up and down. They just do. So once upon a time, as you're breathing, just feeling connected to that breath, once upon a time, a long time ago, when my children were quite young, I taught a yoga class every afternoon at the College of Marin from 4 until 7. That meant that I needed to pick them all up at school at 3 and take breaths in and out, keep in touch with your breath. Pick them up at 3. <coughs> 
deliver them to piano lessons and Cub Scouts and swimming and wherever they needed to be in the afternoon and get myself to lesson, to the yoga lesson by four, breath in and out. It often happened. <coughs> oh, I'm really sorry about that. Now I'm going to take some sips. Just keep breathing. I'll take some time. It often happened, breathe, 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 that I would drop off my eldest son at whatever activity, usually swim team, I was dropping him off at. And he'd say, I just, Mom, I just remembered I forgot my math homework. It also happened when he said that, that annoyance arose in me. <laughs> Feel your body as the breath comes in and out. And in my mind, I would think, what's the matter with him? He has no appreciation of the fact that I also have a life. Take your arms up to the side, stretch them out. Stretch through the wrists, circle your wrists one way. And then the other way. Change whenever you want to. Lower them and rest and put them back up when you want to. I think to myself, he has no appreciation of my life. Doesn't care about me. All the way to the yoga class, I'd be thinking, I'm all fumed up, I'm so annoyed. How can I teach a yoga class if I'm all annoyed? You're supposed to come relaxed. Nor can I come in and tell these people I'm all annoyed. That's not nice either. I have to go in and fake it. Take your arms over your head and stretch them up. Stretch on one side and breathe. And relax and let the breath out. Stretch on one side and then the other. So I'd get to the yoga class and I'd say to myself, okay, go do it. And I'd say to those people, stretch your right arm up, up, up. And relax it and stretch your left arm up and relax it, link your fingers together, turn your palms up, and stretch both arms up towards the ceiling. And I'd be thinking, when he comes home tonight, <laughs> relax the arms a little bit, stretch your arms up towards the ceiling, stretch, 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 open your arms out to the side. We're gonna have to discuss this at the dinner table. And his father is not gonna be at all happy to hear this. Open your palms towards the ceiling and raise your arms up. And circle your wrists one way. Maybe we should make TV watching contingent on him. Remember, circle your, arm, circle your hands the other way. Bring your arms out in front of your body. And link your fingers together and turn your palms forward and stretch. Because it's really very insensitive. He's very not thoughtful about me. And somehow he's got to learn now while he's young, otherwise he's never going to know. <laughs> I continue on to bring your arms out to the side and stretch. 
and then bring your arms up over your head. And at some point, usually between five and ten minutes, if I was really paying attention to my body and bringing my whole attention into that moment, there would be a moment of circle your wrists over your head. There would be a moment where I would have a revelation, an insight. And the insight would be, he's eight years old. <laughs> Bring your arms out to the side. Eight-year-olds are not interested in their mother's career. Bring your arms down to your side. And shake your hands in front of you. And I would be very relieved to have not have made such a big scene. I didn't bring it up at the dinner table. And we didn't take away the TV privileges. And I got in the habit of saying when I picked him up at school, do you have your math homework with you? And all your other homework before we drive away, take your arms up over your head and take a breath. And bring them down. Now sit down wherever you were sitting. And we'll sit for 10 minutes before there's a teaching. Feel your body as you sit back down after having moved it and exercised it. Appreciate the vitality of your body. As Lynn said this morning, sit. Feel your body sitting.
I want to take you uh, inside the prison <laughs> for a bit uh, because I have met uh, many teachers there and situations that have taught me the Dharma that I didn't really know in quite that way before. I am um, uh, the senior Zen master at High Desert State Prison. I was asked to come there because for three and a half years there had been no Buddhist chaplain of any sort at the prison. And uh, there is, in fact, in the state of California, uh, no funding whatsoever. So all the work that comes in for Buddhism in the prisons is voluntary. Whereas some of the other traditions do have staff-paid chaplains. Um, I didn't want to go. I mean, my life was pretty busy. I had mostly what I wanted to do already. And my intention was to go and see what it was like. And then I would see whether I wanted to continue on that. I had some sense that once I undertook it, it wouldn't be easy to extricate myself from, that I would have set up expectations that I simply couldn't walk away from. So at any rate, um, I had to go through all the processes of uh, getting clearance and then first of all, you know, my credentials as a teacher, all that sort of thing in, in the tradition, and then a clearance before you can enter the prison and finally they issued me a card with uh, my picture on it. Surprisingly, you know, like I have never been able to get a Department of Motor Vehicles photograph that I could stand to look at. And I thought, this prison thing is going to be awful. It's the best photograph I've ever gotten on a card, you know. I, I really look good, you know. <laughs> so at any rate, I got my card. And I went up one day with the understanding that I would see what it was like. And then I would see whether I really wanted to commit or not. So I went in through the gate. You get tapped down and they search all your belongings to see if you're not bringing something into the prison, drugs or something. And then um, the, the prison is surrounded by an electrified fence. It's vicious in a way because the electrical lines that are strung there are barely visible. I mean, birds fly right into them. They don't see them. So anyone attempting to escape would have to go first up over a very high fence and through razor wire and then down into the intersection where this electrical line is strung and get electrocuted. And then so there's these two fences, so it, um, escape is, in that manner is virtually impossible. But when you go in, uh, you're always going through these things, sort of like the Panama Canal, you know, where they fill one lock before they open the other, so that you move in, so they're double gates, and then you're between gates, and they close the one, and they don't open the inside one until you have done that. So after, at any rate, about maybe 18 gates, I end up, where I had the name of one particular Buddhist that I knew to be a Buddhist, a Southeast Asian, probably 
practicing Pure Land Buddhism. I had to learn a lot about the Amitabha Sutra <laughs> to teach there. So at any rate, after going through all these different gates and eventually getting into Sea Yard and then into one of the buildings in Sea Yard, I end up at the cell. Now, I'll tell you that I always knew the stories about the rape and the violence in the yard, and, and I will say that uh, I've been at this going into my sixth year now, and I have never gone to the prison that while I was there or during that day, there wasn't some kind of violence, an attack, typically two or three on one that's targeted. Bludgeonings and stabbings are the most popular, and occasionally there will be a homicide. So I knew that was bad. But that isn't the worst of it. The worst of it is the way that you live day by day. So I come up to this cell, a C3215, that would be on the upper catwalk in building C3. And the cell is like, oh, you know, so wide, maybe about as long as from the outside edge of this to the cup over there. There's uh, two people in it and a um, bunk bed for them to occupy. Someone has to get on the bunk, you know, practically for the other one to pass by. There's a toilet in there and a little wash basin. And then it's, a, it's like a crypt, you know, it's a solid concrete structure. I mean, when I went to Old Folsom Prison to, to do a retreat there, I saw bars which were also very cramped, but they had bars on the front of them. And I thought, God, what a relief that would be in the modern prisons in which they have no bars. What you have to look out from is on nothing, is a window about this high and about this wide, a little slit window and a big, thick, electronically controlled door like a gate which lets you in and out when it's time for you to go in and out and a little hole to talk through. The interesting thing about the engineering of this is you can't talk through the hole and see the person at the same time because it's not located appropriately to the window. So what you end up doing is you end up standing on either side of the door shouting at one another, trying to be heard. So I got there and um, this is one of my first Dharma lessons. I don't you're going to have to tell me what it means because I'm not sure. I just know that it's buried inside. Somewhere. So, on the other side of this little slit window is this little Asian guy. He's about my size. And he's all scabby and marked. And I tell him who I am. You know, I'm the Buddhist person. He he doesn't seem to understand at first and so I it's so hard. So I tell him again and he lights up and he says, Are you my teacher? And I said, Yes, I'm your teacher. That's, that's the fork in the road right there. He said, are we going to have services? 
And I said, we'll have services. Now, I don't know what the teaching is there, but I knew that life had taken me up again in ways that I hadn't simply chosen. And I felt this love for this little guy who is serving two life prison sentences consecutively and who will never leave prison. Who was a murderer. So that was how it started. And there was something about that whole exchange that at least taught me an awful lot about myself and about the things I think I've chosen in life, which if I look back on them, I haven't really in a way. I've made choices as of the moment, but here I don't ever recall making a choice. He said, are you my teacher? And there was nothing could come out of me except, yeah, I'm it. I'm your guy. I'm the Buddhist guy. So I want to tell you about, the names here will be fictional, although the people are very actual, and the details are best that recollection can make them, about Elam Auerbach. Uh, he, he really taught me a lot. And um, so Elam, he was, he was going to have a, a he was a, a Tibetan Buddhist, and he had been training by correspondence with a, a lama in Washington State, and it had come down to the point where she was finally willing to give him the precepts, you know, lay ordination over the phone from Washington. But they needed someone to arrange that for them. Well, I, by that time I was, you know, the, the Buddhist chaplain, so that was my job. So I went through all the obstacles that a prison can possibly put in your way and finally arranged a phone, the single phone, in the whole yard in which this individual was imprisoned, which you can make an out-of-state call, and got a time set up, a schedule, when the Lama would call and when we would be. Actually, I would call them, so the state paid for the cost of a long-distance call, and um, was there to witness Elam's um, almost hour-long Jukai ceremony, what we call Jukai, the taking of the precepts. Well, we sat afterwards in uh, Dokasan, just one-on-one. He was on a cushion and I was on a cushion to get to know one another as I've been teaching him ever since. So he does Tibetan and Zen now. And uh, Elam said to me, he said, uh, he says, uh, I don't have normal feelings. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, he said, what kind of feelings? Well, he said, I don't feel sad. And he said, the guards had even noticed it. And he said, I'm afraid if by any chance I should ever come up for some kind of parole, he said, this will work against me. I thought it unusual that the guards would have noticed and actually told him that. That's more connection than the guards frequently have with inmates. So, I said, well, okay, so what, what, what are you do about, doing about that? Are you doing anything about that? And he said, well, this will kill you. He says, well, he said, uh, I got someone, you know, to take me to the prison library. 
And I asked the librarian there for books. He said, like novels or stories with lots of feelings in them. And Elam was reading stories in order to try to feel something. I mean, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could have the courage in those circumstances to do that. <laughs> and he was doing it. And I said, well, how's it working? He said, well, if I can really get into the story, he says, I can feel some things. I said, well, what kind of things? He said, well, sometimes, he says, I get really angry at the bad guys. I said, okay. And he said, and sometimes I get worried about people, you know, that I like in there. I said, oh, you like some of them? Yeah, I get worried about that. And then other feelings like that. So he explained to me that he was having feelings. I knew something then. I knew that his deficiency in emotional state was not brain damage where he simply didn't have the centers in the brain to enact emotional responses. I knew that it was environmental, that something had happened to him, that he'd shut down. Then, before that was over, he leaned forward like this is this big secret. He says, you know what I did the other day? I said, no, what, what did you do? He said, I cried because I was happy. And I said, well, that's good. He didn't think I got it. He said, no, he said, because I was happy. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it is good. It is really good, you know. That's the kind of crying a lot of us do. That's tenderness. That's beautiful. Well, I suggested to him then that if he would start to look at other inmates for whom he felt apparently complete indifference as though they were characters in one of his stories. I said, now you won't have as much detail because you've got an author there that tells you a lot of things about people's personal lives. But if you really watch them, kind of watch how they behave and whatnot, you might be able to sort of figure out from what you know of life and what you're learning from your books what might be going on with them. Um, see, you know, maybe you'll start to have a little more responsiveness to them. So he's, he, he was working on that. He's still working on that. Well, he was working on that, and one of the first things he discovered, he didn't like anybody. <laughs> and I thought, well, he's really upset about this because he's also, at the same time, working, trying to work on compassion. <laughs> so he's in a bit of a barge, you know, like his big discovery is, I don't like anybody <laughs> in here. I don't like the guards. I don't like the other inmates. I don't want it. I don't care anything about any of them, you know. But he did care about them because he didn't like them, you see. He didn't understand why I was cheering, you know, saying, wow, that's great, you know, you hate them. That's wonderful, you know. Something's happening here. So I gave him um, meta verses to work on and he said hey he said well i can say that stuff to somebody you know but he said i don't i don't feel it you know like i really don't like this person so saying well may you be well may you be happy may you be at peace uh, he said i don't feel it. i said it's okay fake it you know just fake it you know just 
keep saying it, and I said, maybe in time, it'll actually begin to happen. And, and it did, you know. It really did. He began to tell me how he began to understand something about somebody and how he'd made a friend with somebody and how he'd finally had a celly. That's uh, your companion. They call the companion inside the cell that he had something in common with and he, 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 he kind of cared about him. He liked him. So that's working. But the next discovery he came to uh, really upset him was he said, you know, he wrote me a letter. He said, he said, oh, they call me Master Lin. The, the, <laughs> the inmates like that bit of uh, formality very much, particularly the Asians. And I like first names, so we settled on Master Lin. <laughs> so they write, Dear Master Lin, you know, and they're always very polite. I, I hope this finds you in good health and well-being. I hope you and your wife are feeling good, you know, before they get into it. And then he wrote me and he said... Uh, he said, I don't like myself. And I thought, wow. <laughs> you know, now we're finally touching it. Um, so I taught him to say meta for himself. <laughs> and little by little, it's working. Now, in our first encounter with him, when I went and he had his precept ceremony, just before he left, he said to me, he said, because he knew that I was about two and a half hours away on the other side of the mountains, he said, did you come all this way just for me? And I said, yeah. And I saw him cry a little. And I knew, you know, we were going to be okay. We were going to make it. So there, in that particular instance, I don't really want to try to spell out, you know, the lesson in that for me, the Dharma in that for me. I think probably you will find in it what you find for yourself. Uh, I will just say this much. I, I'm seeing in a person like Elam the kind of courage I hardly knew existed because of the dullness and the terribleness of the life that he faces in prison. Where they're on lockdown, which means you're in your cell 24 hours a day with maybe a half an hour for a shower, if you're lucky, for months on end. You're more on lockdown than you are able to go out for a, re a, a recreation period a, in, in the yard. So it's, it's, a, it's a bad life. So that was Elam. Then one other thing I want to tell you about, because it really awakened me, and that is I, I go in and I hold meditation meetings, and sometimes they have a sign-up sheet, and everybody wants to get out of the cell. So sometimes I'm in there, and there's like 40 or 50 inmates, you know, in there. And the guards, they don't like that. And they tell me things like, well, you have a little signaling device, and it's keyed to the chapel. So if they push that signaling device within a matter of seconds, there will be guards breaking into the room. And in a matter of minutes, there may be 25, 30 guards, and they're all wearing flak vests, and they got spray, and they got batons and whatnot to hit people with. That's what it's for. And then they tell me, one guard told me, he said, okay, you see that little button right there? I said, yeah. He said, 
You notice how it just fits your finger? Yeah, he said, push it. He said, he said don't wait until things develop. The minute you think something's going to happen, push the signal. Because if you wait, it may be too late. And then they told me, you're turning down the lights some for your meditation? Yeah. And one of them said, I would never sit on the floor. And I thought, okay, look, I'm five foot two and a half inches. Well, about two now. I've shrunk about three and a half inches. I can't see what sitting in a chair was going to make me any safer, you know, than sitting on the floor. I mean, I just couldn't fathom what kind of protection I was supposed to get, you know. If I hung myself from the ceiling, I would still seem to be totally vulnerable. So I, I, didn't, I didn't catch that. I thought, you know, if I'm in danger, I'm in danger, and that's, that's it. Um, I'm not particularly brave because I never really think of danger when I'm in there. I just see these guys, and... They're just people, and we're just doing the best we can. That's all. So at any rate, I'm in there one day, and I'll give this man the name of Duggar. He, it, it's not his exact name, but it's kind of like that. And he's sitting about two rows back, so he's pretty close to me. And uh, I'm giving a talk on the three refuges. I'm trying to explain to them what the three refuges and encourage them, you know, maybe they want to take refuge. So Duggar starts talking, and he's talking louder and louder, and I can't make out a thing about what he's saying. And he seems to be getting really worked up. And then he's up, and he's coming in my direction, and I am kind of hunting, you know, for the signal. This looks like this is it, you know. They say, don't wait till things get crosswise. And I'm having trouble finding the signal, actually, at that moment, which I should have already had, I guess, under my pan. Before he can get to me, there's four or five inmates between me and him. And they say, hey, Duggar, come on, man, cool it. You know, know, Master Jensen, Monster Lin, he's just doing his Buddhist thing. He don't know shit, man. You know, you just come on back here with us. You know, this is cool. And he does. And they take him back and he sits down with him. Now, I know at that point, and every inmate in that room knows, that what I'm supposed to do is to signal for the guards, report the attack, because the very one thing they won't tolerate in a prison ever is either a verbal or a physical threat on any staff. They're frightened to death of that, getting out of control. And they all know that, and they're all just watching to see what I'm going to do. And if I did that, then the guards would come in, and they would have Duggar down on the floor on his face, and they would cuff him, and they would take him into a kind of holding area, and they would strip him down to his shorts, and they would put him in a cage that you can't sit down in, and they would keep him then for 10 or 12 hours, and then they would remove him to the hole where he wouldn't be able to see anybody or have any personal belongings for probably a year. But Duggar's already sitting back there with the guys, you know, and they didn't do any of that. I felt, okay, I'm a lot safer with the inmates than with the guards. And when Duggar comes out of that hole, if he were to go in there, what will he be like? 
uh, you know, he, he kept coming, came a few more times when I was doing that. He always sat back there. He, he never started chattering. He never did any kind of thing of that sort. He seemed to be getting along just fine. Well, there, I just realized something about how much the prison had to teach me. They knew all sorts of things I didn't know and that they knew how to function there and what was possible and what wasn't. And that I could put myself in their keeping to a great extent. I thought I came into the prison, you know, to lead them all together, you know, to gather them and teach them. And there's some truth in that. I mean, there are things they didn't know, things they couldn't even hint at. But they knew things that I didn't know that I absolutely had to know and I had to trust them to show me what was going on. A guard's viewpoint was one of keep control and do so by force. I, I don't fault them for that. But the inmate viewpoint was different. There was ways that it might be possible to get along. And so they taught me that. So one of the dharmas, I will say this much about it, that I learned when I'm holding back from someone, you know, like out of fear or dislike, is all I need to do is recall a few tears in the eyes of a murderer that said, did you come all this way just for me? Oh, I think that's what I have to say. I mean, I don't want to bum everybody out here in the <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> uh, uh, I would say this about it. What I have been talking about is not horrid. It's beautiful. There's just no place in the world out of which sweetness can't arise. And I thought, people are always after me, when are you going to write a book about prison and I didn't want to because it's awful and I didn't want to just talk about how awful it is that's been done thousands of times and then one day it, it struck me that maybe someday I will because what I'm interested in in the prison is the courage and the beauty that comes out of it and of course there it's starkly present because of the contrasting surrounding life Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm such a crybaby. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Huh? Aren't you glad that you're a, a crybaby? Oh, yeah, except, you know... I cry over really bad movies. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, you know, I have no, and I have to say, I think, I think Dharma practice has done that. It makes you raw, makes you vulnerable. You know, just on that point, I think it does. Um... And that very phrase comes up often. I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that we're soon going to leave, but, and this is maybe why this particular memory comes in my mind, 
But it's, it's very um, usual that on the last day of a retreat, when people are talking about their experiences, one of the questions that people will say is they'll say, you know, I'm afraid to go out in the world because, um, you know, we've been here for four days, six days, two weeks. Um, one of the things that uh, is... Uh, Everybody's experience on retreat, I think, I think it's a universal experience, is that certainly here, I think in every retreat center, we work very hard to make the surroundings uh, very supportive so that people's nervous system can settle down. And when, your story, which is so beautiful, and is in so many ways, from so many aspects, of teaching on the fact that... Uh, uh, love is the absence of fear, or the absence of fear allows for love, whichever way you can do that. And um, uh, what I said before about when the mind is turmoiled, our own natural wisdom isn't available to us. And even in the you know really silly story I told you about my son, um, when my own natural wisdom isn't available to me, I can get frightened about... Um, I'll be late, I won't do it well, where are they? They don't respect me. All of it just do ridiculous fears, you know? And but and when I get frightened, you start to think vindictive, I'll take away the TV, I'll tell his father, I'll do this, I'll do that. I mean, that's not terrible vindictiveness, but it's my mind in retributive mode. It's not my mind in loving mode. And all of a sudden, when the mind settles down and its wisdom reinstates itself, hey, get a grip then what's true is that I really love him. And I'm so happy that I didn't say anything terrible to him and mess it up. And, you know, now, and, you know, all my children are grown. They love me. I'm very happy about that. Um, I was thinking about the fact that when people come here, the, 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 I tell them on the first night, actually, this is an interesting thing. I'm going to come back to your story about vulnerable. Um, on the first night of retreats, I mostly always say to people, you know, uh, we'll start out with instructions, you know, instructions tonight, and every day on the schedule it says instructional sit for the first morning sit, and the person will say, now I'm adding to the instruction, this instruction, that instruction, walking, eating instructions, this instruction, uh, amplifying the keenness of perception instruction, a lot of instructions. I said, but you know, if you didn't do a single instruction the whole week, if you just came here and hung out and actually did the schedule meticulously, if you, if you did the rules, if you didn't talk, if you didn't interact with people, if you didn't use your cell phone and sneak up the hill to the few places where we have reception out here, <laughs> if you didn't make the cell phone and you didn't check your Blackberry and uh, you didn't read a book, uh, if you had no input except your own mind, you stayed here for a week, and you got up when the bell rang, and you went to sleep at night with everyone else, and you sat still, and you walked, and sat still, and walked throughout the day, just as we do. Sat still, move, sit still, move, sit still, move. Ate these three healthy meals, took a shower, took care of your body. At the end of a week, your mind would be wiser. You really, you'd be all right. Maybe you'd have the same number of insights as if you did this and brought the attention to that and brought the attention to this and the attention to that. 
there's a longer story of how I've seen that actually work itself out, but we we don't have time for longer stories. But um, but my sense more and more is that, uh, and I say this to people, I say, you know, the, the instructions aren't worthless. They're very good devices for uh, 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 inclining the mind in a certain direction. Trungpa Rinpoche used to have a great line. He'd say, uh, uh, insights, revelations are uh, accidents. He said, but meditating makes you accident prone. <laughs> so uh, really, you pay attention to this, pay attention to that, pay attention to that, pay attention to that. In between, poof, somebody says, I'm not into hassling and my life changes. Or someone says something else and my life changes on the way from X to Y. But back on the vulnerable, somebody because it's quiet here, and because also it's a, um, it's a consciously uh, safe community. On the first night, we all take refuges and precepts together, and we say them out loud, and we explain them all. And the people who come are you know, always trustworthy people. I, I used to feel funny giving a precept about not not taking that which isn't given or not harming living beings. I think to myself, really, this is maybe this is falling poorly on people's ears because after all, the people who come here are not the kind of people who take things that aren't given or who would do harm. But it's very consoling to sit in, in a world like our world, to sit with people who are prepared to say, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. It's very consoling. Maybe we'll do it just before we leave tonight. That in this world of turmoil, there are people prepared to do that. And we talk about the fact that there are no, um, there are no locks on the doors here. And as 10 years of retreat practice, nothing has ever disappeared from anybody's room. One time, someone came and, and said that their wallet was missing. We, the, you know, free sound of alarm went through the managers. They went back with the person to their room and it had fallen behind the bed. Nothing ever disappears here. The doors are unlocked. Uh, I was on a retreat once where someone took an orange from uh, a meal, probably from the breakfast meal, thinking I'll just save it for later, and left it on a windowsill. It was in, actually in another retreat center, but they left it on the windowsill, and we're going to come back for it later, I suppose, and forgot about it. And that orange sat there for days and days and days, and finally it got all moldy, and one of the staff took it upon themselves to move this moldy gray orange. Nobody could eat it anymore, but nobody takes any... In our meditation hall, people leave stuff all around, pillows, bottles, all their cough drops, everything. Nothing moves. So people live in a very safely held container, and no one breaks into their private space. No one talks to them. No one goes in their room. No one makes eye contact. So you're really very, very safe from intrusion here. And so people, and it really supports the mind settling down and becoming, I think to myself, always reasonable. I, I, I often on the second or third day of a retreat when my life has been quite hectic before, I think to myself, ah, oh, sanity has returned. There's a, just a certain moment where 
I think, ah, oh, that was that was bothering me so much. That was nothing. Ah, oh, this other thing that seemed so insurmountable. It's not insurmountable. This that was worrying me so much, I'll manage it somehow. Those are all, those aren't, you know, he's eight years old. I mean, none of these things are so profound. They're just for plain things. Life is complicated. But for the most part, we manage to do it. One way or another, we manage to do it. That's the great revelation. And we can relax because we've only got a life. And it's not more complicated than that. One way or another, we'll do it. That's the sanity. But on the last day, people say, you know, I feel vulnerable. Like I cry too much and I'm moved by everything. And, um, we have times here where uh, one time in, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, I guess it was in the spring because we had a new baby deer. And um, I guess one, the mountain lion came down and got it. Some, some animal, we do have mountain lions, you don't see them. I've never seen one. But every once in a while they come and kill an animal. But, it, but not normally so low down here. And it killed a baby deer. And uh, the doe was making the most terrible sound of agony. And people knew about it. And they were watching her. That's like watching, watching an animal that you can't console, crying, you know. And and people were shaken to the core, you know. Um, so people say I'm afraid to leave because I'm too vulnerable. And I I say, all the things about you'll be fine, but I say also, I in my heart I think there's no such thing as too vulnerable. I am waiting for the world to become too vulnerable. If everybody became too vulnerable, <laughs> we'd stop killing each other, and we'd share, and we'd make a reasonable world. Yesterday, when I met Lynn last night, I told him when I go to teach places, I, don't, I never take material with me. I don't have prepared Dharma talks. I figure it's in there. Uh, but I, um, I, you know, and I teach out of what comes up. But I said I take three pieces of paper with me. And one of them is the Metta Sutta, because sometime in the time that I'll be with people, I'll feel suddenly moved to read the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's teaching on universal love. And I know it by heart, but I bring it just because I want to look at it, and sometimes everybody says I need it, and then I can duplicate it for them. And I bring two other things with me, and I said, I won't tell you, I said this last night, so I won't tell you my two other things, but I bring two other poems. They're not Buddhist poems. I brought the same two poems with me forever. The first one is um, Pablo Neruda. Is anybody here a native speaker in Spanish? Anybody here a native speaker? Alas. Um, Neruda wrote in Spanish, of course, and uh, the poem, which I also have with me, Aquearse, is beautiful. So just to listen to, even if you didn't understand Spanish. But my Spanish reading isn't good enough, so I'll read it to you in English. And I thought of it because we talked about Now we will count to twelve, 
and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Now I'll count to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. So I don't think they're so too vulnerable. I'm waiting for too vulnerable. Because I think it has to happen soon, this world. So the other thing that I carry with me, because I said I had it, so. You probably know it. People are reading it a lot these days. It's by an American-Palestinian poet, Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say it is I who you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere, 
like a shadow or a friend. I wonder if we should um, spend some five minutes sitting quietly. Would you like to end with refuges and precepts? I'll tell you what they are so you know about it and so you feel comfortable about it. They're the formal way in which we begin and end retreats. And the refuges are um, I go for a refuge to the Buddha, I go to refuge, I take refuge in the Sangha, I, I take refuge in the Buddha, and I take refuge in the Sangha. I understand those in the largest possible way. I think about uh, the actual Siddhartha Gautama and uh, his great insight and his great contribution to um, a sane world then and now. I think of all the other great insightful philosophers and religious leaders who in a world um, so complex and so overwrought have been able to point the way to peace of mind and make the connection between peace of mind and a peaceful world. So when I say, when I, say I take refuge in the Buddha, I'm meaning to say, I feel, I trust that that mind of peace, that chooses peace as its way of interacting, kindness as its way of manifesting, is a mind that I could have as well, that it's the birthright of human beings to have such a mind. So with homage to the actual Buddha and all the other illuminated beings of time. It's the Buddha that's the Buddha of Buddha mind that's pure and available for all of us. I say I take refuge in the Dharma. It's with great respect for the teachings of the Buddha, for the particular teachings of the Buddha. But the teachings of Emerson and Thoreau and Kassanzakis and my grandmother and your grandmother and everyone else who ever said to you, this is workable and um, love is letting go of fear. And we could love universally and make a different world. When I say I take refuge in the Sangha, I mean, first of all, the, the community of people that I practice with here in Spirit Rock, other places, but I think larger than that, I think the community of all my sanghas, all my, all my family groups that support me, all my other groups that support me, my community groups that support me, 
all the people to whom my life is important and who are important to me, all the people who somehow um, I know are connected to me in their my heart, and therefore I must be connected in theirs. And I feel in that connection each year, especially as I'm older, the profundity of that connection to me, that, that connection and community on all its levels, friendship becomes more and more important to me as I grow older. And the precepts, which are wonderful to say, as I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings, I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given, and to take the precept to speak in a way that's not exploitive or abusive, and to take the precept to express my sexuality in a way that's neither exploitive or abusive. I undertake the precept to uh, renounce intoxicants that cloud my mind and lead to heedlessness. Each of those I take as a practice so that sometimes we have whole classes here on, on the second Wednesday of every month we spend an hour talking about those precepts, not as a set of laws, but really as guiding principles. What does it mean, cloud the mind? It's not just substances that cloud my mind. My email, blogs clog the mind, my mind. Too much work clouds, clouds my mind. Overscheduling clouds my mind. I like taking the precepts. On the morning uh, after uh, September 11th, 2001, uh, that was September 12th, it was a Wednesday morning. And so the Wednesday morning class was here that morning. And we more or less just sat quietly most of the time because the, the dismay in everybody's minds and hearts and bodies was enormous. But at some point, we all of us together chanted refuges and precepts. And it was so consoling to think in this troubled, upset, confused world, there are people who are prepared to say, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. And it's very consoling to me to feel connected to people who want to do that. So if this is the first time you're hearing about refuges and precepts, when I say them now, I'll say them and I'll um, invite you to say them back after me. But you don't have to say them out loud. You can say them in your mind. You should keep in mind that you aren't accidentally becoming a Buddhist. Uh, 
It's not a, you haven't signed anything or renounced anything else. Everyone here knows that, that they'll find me uh, uh, on Wednesday evening celebrating the, the new year of Rosh Hashanah in a non-problematic way. So you're not renouncing anything. You're not joining anything. If you want to. If you want to. Do you have a way that you sing them specially? Or a tune, Lynn? Or do you just say? or Do you have a special way that you say precepts? Or do you sing them? or? Uh, not the precepts. We, we have chants on the three refuges. And we have a song on the on the four bodhisattva vows. Yeah. <laughs> but why don't you just lead us in these? I'll do, uh, how about if I if we do the refuges and precepts in English, and then you do the song of the bodhisattva vows to okay. close. Okay. Okay. Do you know what a bodhisattva is? Is someone who has dedicated her or his life in this lifetime or any other lifetime, to the well-being of all beings. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Dharma. For the second time, I take refuge in the Dharma. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Dharma. For the third time, I take refuge in the Dharma. For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking what is not freely given. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking what is not freely given. I undertake the precept to speak wisely. I undertake the precept to speak wisely. I undertake the precept to express my sexuality wisely. I undertake the precept to express my sexuality wisely. I undertake the precept to abstain from activities that cloud my mind and lead to heedlessness. I undertake the precept to abstain from activities that cloud my mind May these precepts be the cause of happiness. May these precepts be the cause of happiness.
I vow to wake all the beings of the world. I vow to set endless heartache to rest. I vow to walk through every wisdom gate. I vow to live the great Buddha way. I vow to wake all the beings of the world. I vow to set endless heartache to rest. I vow to walk through every wisdom gate. I vow to live the great Buddha way. All together. I vow to wake all the beings of the world. I vow to set endless heartache to rest. I vow to walk through every wisdom gate. I vow to live the great Buddha way. <laughs> Lively, huh? Thank you very much. The final wisdom teaching as you leave is when you go out the gate, be sure to turn right. <laughs> Everybody's going left. But you need to turn right in order to do it legally, and you need to go down to the end and go through the city of Woodacre in order to go back, unless you're going out to the coast. I hope you'll come again. Thank you very, very, very much. Well, and I just want to thank you, Sylvia, for inviting me here, and I want to thank all of you for being here and let me join in to sit with you. It's been beautiful. Yeah. I knew we'd love each other. So <laughs> 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 get a high five. <laughs> <laughs> we did it, Sylvia. <laughs> Blessings. Take good care. Happy New Year. <laughs>